sit down, Waldo. If you really want to kill the most things, be a vegan. One animal per arrow. The farmers who protect your beans kill everything. One animal per arrow. Shove a backstrap up his ass. Anything that gets in that bean field, I'm either plowing dismember. If anything does survive my first slaughter, I'm going to come in with Mansanto and poison the shit out of everything so you can have a tofu salad and not be responsible for any death. Fuck you. Wait a second, man. What do you think the teacher's going to look like this year? All right. Here we go. Part two. We've got Errol coming back. It's a long one, so if busts are in two parts, as I explained at the end of part one, we're going to come back to catastrophic fire days and what that means for deer surviving. So back to you, boys. Catastrophic fire burns. Uh, in 2003, there was only four catastrophic fire days. It burnt for 1.3 million hectares over 59 days. It was only four days that were catastrophic. In 2006-07, it burnt 1.2 million hectares over 69 days, of which five days were catastrophic. Now, when they're catastrophic, these fires burn more than 20 kilometres in a day. Samba's home range. Know is at best eight k's, and just to describe the conditions. There's no way they can they can be peak athletes in these conditions. It's just not possible. The other thing to factor in, you know, these white-tailed deer survive, but the white-tailed deer evolved in North America. The black-tails, I mean, they have strategies to overcome fire because they evolve there. Samba don't. Um, so anyhow, if you just, oh, so the immediate survival after that in these catastrophic days, they go into what I called, I just determined from watching them up, uh, in Benambra and, uh, Omeo, I called it survival mode where they did only what was required to survive, nothing else. There was so little forage, they hadn't, course they had no energy and an indication of how little forage they had is that samba on normal forage defecate many probably up to a dozen pellet groups in 24 hours with 80 pellets per group after this fire in these burned areas i had trouble finding a pellet group i find tracks of deer I find browse lines up to three metres high and think, you know, he just whoever ate that had to be on a trampoline. They must have been leaping up for the food. But the pellet groups I've found, unlike the green, soft, uh, normal pellet groups, these only had 30 pellets and they were brown, dry. Uh, it was difficult to find a rub tree, if, if any, Preaching and wallowing was absolutely limited, restricted, 
they absolutely went into survival mode during that first autumn and winter. However, that was there, that was during that millennial drought when there was no rain occurred up there. Because again, it's all site it's all site specific, but it was a catastrophic burn up there. Absolutely catastrophic. But if you go back to areas where cool, cool to moderate intensity burns and then they have good rainfall within a month, there's plenty of food to get them through the, the first autumn and winter. You know, it's mostly grasses, blackberry, uh, tree fern fronds, uh, but there's food to get them through. But again, it's, it's all about the site-specific circumstances of the fire. Combine a catastrophic with drought afterwards, a drought before, um, Samba are, are in a lot of trouble for survival. So, so are they, you know, looking at, at, I don't know, are they eating bark or, you know, when, when everything's black, are they trying to dig up uh, unburned roots un, under the ground or, you know, what are they typically looking for? When no, no I never found that. But what, no, what I found was that... Um, You've always got unburnt areas in cool to moderate burn, cool burns, cool to moderate, even high intensity. You've even got unburnt gully bottoms in catastrophic burns because of because of um, oxygen, you know, being consumed. Fire has to go out, but also even during a catastrophic burn, one night at night time, circumstances for the fire condition can change rapidly. Uh, humidity increases, temperature can drop enormously, then there's no wind. You've got high, you've got very low humidity, and the fire heat, intensity of the fire drops considerably during the nighttime. If the fire burns through that area during the night, then that area is, there would be parts of that area that are spared because the, the cool air will be something like, the burn there will be cool to moderate. It's not going to be high intensity. But the next day, it could rage on again. Right, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Sorry, Greg, I think did I cut you off there? Yeah, no, that, that is interesting, and probably just just leading off of that, talking about you know immediately after the fires, um, you know, how, how have you seen them bounce back when you start talking about you know the second autumn, for example? Um, what, what's your experience there? Oh uh, well, could I start with the first spring? Yes, yes. Sorry, first spring. Go for it. Yeah, right. The first spring, uh, provided you've got rain, and, and even in the uh, Benambra area, it was a 2 3 drought, there was enough rain there in the first spring after the fire to spurn uh, an enormous amount of growth, especially grasses and clover. Uh, clover is one of those grasses, uh, legumes, that springs right back in the first spring after a fire. And so, and those... And that the clover particularly grows on the creek and river flats on south facing sides as well. So there's by the first spring, there's an enormous amount of food again. And the deer, you know, they're, uh, they're out of survival mode. They've got enough food, but they're particularly coming down from the burnt gully heads and burnt faces to these flats to feed during the first spring. So they can become quite vulnerable to hunters because they've got to travel, they've got to travel every time, every day, every evening down to these flats 
and make their way back again to get food because that's where the majority of the food is in the first spring. Uh, um, Errol, just a, a sort of question out of left field on you. Um, have you found, do, do Samba reduce their reproductive habits during the first year? Do they just shut it down for a year or anything like that that you've seen? Look, there's, there's been no research on that, no evidence whatsoever on that. Um, so, so I can't say. Um, oh, fair enough. What, 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 what I think would be a real issue for them in the, that year before cover grows back is that one of the phenomenal, phenomenal things is dingoes, the large number of dingoes survive these fires. And it seems to me from the lack of dead brumbies I found, especially in the Benamba area, that they must survive fairly well too compared to Samba. But the, the predator, the dingo, that consumes a lot of young Samba calves, spikers, yearlings, and even, of course, hinds, their numbers were huge. They survived. I don't know how they actually survived, but it could be because, one, you know, they're, they're very athletic. They run tracks that makes their – they make ridge lines, tracks that makes their movement very efficient, very fast. Um, and they have large home ranges, you know, 20 kilometres, 20 miles, 20 kilometres, no problem. So the dingoes certainly have escaped the fire. Um after two by three fire, there was seven to eight full-time dingo trappers in the uh, East Gippsland area. And uh, according to one of them, Alan Sheehan from Swiss Creek, um, they trapped nearly 800 dingoes in the first uh, six, nine months after that two by three fire. Wow, now, big number. I, now, one of the things they do as trappers to to uh, show the farmers that they've been effective, they're worth their money, they're doing their job, they hang them on the fence. I'm sure you've all seen that. Large hangings on fences. Now, I went around and every time I saw heaps of these strings of dingoes on the fences uh, all throughout East Gippsland after that tubular free fire, and I photographed all of them, everyone I saw. And I took particular note of them. Not once did I see what I would have called was a wild dog. They were typical, absolute dingoes, yellow ginger, black tan, looking like a kelpie, and brindles, three genuine dingo colours. But those deer, those uh, dingoes would account for a lot of the offspring carved in that first winter, autumn and winter, spring after that fire, because there was not much left to eat. You know, dingoes in the catastrophic areas, um, wallabies and kangaroos, they're, you couldn't find a body. I'm sure they were vaporised. So, sure, um, Dingo's had a smorgasbord barbecue, a smorgasbord barbecue immediately for a month after that those fires, but then the food's all gone. Samba calves and young Samba are going to be, you know, definitely on the menu, and that would curtail uh, Samba's recruitment rate um, during that first year after the fire. Errol, just a bit of a segue um, uh, around home range. What happens with, say, offspring of, of your, say, your dominant stag in an area and he's made it, made it up his, his hinds and, and then, you know, 
the yearlings come along and, and they happen to be stags, do they get shunted off by uh, by the dominant stag or or is it a, do they have tolerate sort of family groups or how's that work? Uh, there's no no doubt there's um, some social tolerance of stags because uh, in areas where I, I know of direct um, direct evidence from hunters who are hunting areas where there's no spotlighting, there's no other hunters but themselves and they've been very selective, they are seeing complete age structures of stags, everything, spikers, two-and-a-half-year-olds, three-and-a-half-year-olds, right through to the handlebar 16-year-old, the dominance as well. They're all there. However, even so, Thane Reiner's research shows and anecdotal reports, and some of them were reported in Arthur Bentley's great book, An Introduction to Deer of Australia, I've had similar reports to me as well, of young stags being seen miles north of typical Samba range, miles ahead of what Max Downs called the wave. So those stags will have been dispersing to new home ranges because there's no doubt social pressure will cause them to disperse. It's the same with every creature on Earth. You take Homo sapiens, you know, um, uh, parents, um, husband and wife, set up house in Glen Waverley. They have children. They grow to breeding age, 20-year-old, 22. What do they do? Eventually, they're going to leave home. They leave home. Where do they go? They set up in their own home range, you know, at Berwick or Pakenham, somewhere further. They disperse. But every creature on Earth does this. It's a natural process. Look, Fane Riney writes about dispersal rates in his book. He gives them for Samba only about 0.6 of a kilometre. However, I've, I've done some math on uh, the dispersal rate for Samba that were released near Turidan and King Lake in the 1863 to 1873. Now, they've travelled about 565 k's to get to outskirts of Benambra where they are now. And that works out about 4.6 kilometres a year for Samba. But probably most of his, his uh, research has been done into native species when Samba are an exotic um, and so the dispersal rate has been higher uh, and certainly to some extent maybe the fires have increased their dispersal rate they have increased that rate because of lack of food right so that's possible because these the, my estimate calculation is that 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 dispersal rate is way higher than his 0.6 he rates most animals' uh, dispersal rate, you know, kangaroos, um, brumbies, antelope, somewhere around that 0.6 to a bit over one kilometre. I think horses rate one of the, five, one of the um, highest dispersal rates for large mammals. But most deer are in that 0.6 to, to one kilometre a year. Yeah, well that, that, that's really interesting because we're sort of starting to hear stories of, of Samba creeping out to, you know, uh, out the back out the back of uh, uh, Meningi, which is sort of the, out the back of the southeast where we do a lot of our hunting in South Australia, uh, but they're sort of coming up the peninsula, uh, you know, in dribs and drabs. So, yeah, it's interesting how far they sort of spread out. Remember though, um, you've got you've got farm you've got 
Water Valley in South Australia. Now a lot of there's a lot of escapees from there. Then there's the possibility of hunters. You know, Lyle Murray was a Samba uh, farmer at Puddles Creek. Now he sold Samba to Samba fanciers. How many of those have been released by hunters? You wouldn't know. No, you would. You wouldn't know. And and uh, it's a it's a bit of a taboo topic. But as hunters, we're all we're all run through when we hear the story of a Samba's been spotted. You know, close to but, closer to where we live. You know, it's a bit of a thrill for us. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how are you going with this uh, topic? Oh, look, it was just, it was just a bit of a segue, really. But just while I, while we were still on the on the home range, really, because I, I sort of thought we we were getting on to sort of starting to think about post bushfire regrowth and birth rates and stuff yeah, like that. Sure. So, so we got to the first spring and yeah. summer. Well, if we go to the first autumn, uh, in the first autumn, by that time, second autumn after the fire, you've got a lot of seedlings are one to one and a half metres high, blackwood trees, wattles. They're one, and a half, one to one and a half metres. Now, I noticed that when they were at that stage, uh, particularly in the Benamba area, the samba were eating just the top half of each leaf. It's amazing. So they, they're so selective about picking only the most succulent, most nutritious part of the leaf. But they were taking many half leaves off those blackwood saplings that had come up to one and a, one and a half metres. Um, there was plenty of grasses, of course, by then. There was um, blackberry was growing well back. Um, so the Samba are well out of survival mode. And they're back into breed, normal breeding activity by that stage. So that's that's the second autumn, and and second winter. But when you get into the the second spring, that's that's when things really take off in terms of regrowth. So, um, go on. So if we were say looking at uh, planning a bit of a hunt uh, based on some burns that we've sort of been keeping an eye on. Um, Really, so provide you know, providing it's not sort of it's not sort of swamped with hunters, you know, it, the second spring or sort of twelve to eighteen months later, you'd be starting to think about sort of trying that spot out. You reckon? You'd be think of doing what? Sorry. Oh, like like the sort of eighteen months to two years or the second spring, yep. you'd be sort yep. of thinking, right? That's probably worth a look. Oh, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I was in one of those. Uh, I was in a huge gully system in the Upper Livingston in the second spring. I was guiding a hunter, and um, there was absolutely a smorgasbord of highly succulent, highly nutritious regrowth. Um, visibility was still excellent because, uh, despite that, because the epicormic sh- the the branches hadn't grown back on the eucalypt trees, gum trees. There were still only epicormic shoots, you know, the survival shoots that Samba put out to survive so they can photosynthesize after a fire, continue to live. Um, but we saw um, in that gully, God, we saw, I think, 11 Samba that morning. Um, easy to spot on opposite faces, even though that this is really normally really thick, um, really thick high rainfall area. We can never see from face to face, never. 
but in the second spring we could easily. And there was a high number of deer. And the other thing about this was they'd abandoned the farmland. They no longer needed farmland. There was so much wholly nutritious, wholly succulent regrowth in the forest, there was no need to expose themselves on farmland. And of course, the deer are getting are becoming fat again. Lost a lot of weight in the first year, just like the blacktail did in California. They went from a rating of about uh, two to three uh, uh, fat content down to zero. Samba did the same. But by the second spring, into the second spring, these deer are getting fat. In high rainfall areas um, where there weren't catastrophic burns, like, for example, in the Myrtle Food, Mount Buffalo area, very high rainfall, deer there were fat as mud uh, by the end of the second spring, the first spring, sorry. They were fat. Hound hunters reported them being so fat they could hardly run. That was the, that was the end of the first spring. In the first spring after the fire, but it wasn't catastrophic. You see, it didn't destroy humus, didn't rah rah rah, uh, cooled to moderate intensity burns. Then good rainfall. Yeah, right. That's really interesting, and and it's a really quick turnaround, really. Then, isn't it? You know, once you've had a a burn go through, it just sort of shows you how. The Australian bush operates and, and how it responds really well to a not, not necessarily sort of a feral fire or a catastrophic fire, but you know, a mild burn, it, it responds really well, doesn't it? Uh, it absolutely rejuvenates the forest. Yeah. The forests need that. If you were to speak to fire ecologist Athel Hodgson, you know, fuel reduction burns, of course, uh, do exactly the same thing. Prescribed burns. Um, so, yeah, well, I mean, it, you know. Um, and here's a, I'll just interrupt. Here's a really good point I just thought of. This is so important because um, in areas like the Upper Livingston, where they've been Samba for decades, they had eaten so much forage that the browse lines on every tree were two and a, two to two and a half metres high. Two and, wow. a, two and a half metres high. Wow. So, and when Samba... Um, browse, they take off all the lower branches up to about two metres. So it doesn't grow back. Younger deer cannot reach that. I remember I remember we took a calf for meat and I opened it up to see what it was eating. It was about a 30 kilo calf, about three months old. And it had a banyala leaf in its stomach. But there was no banyala leaf with anywhere within reach of that calf. The mother had obviously broken off and fed it to her, fed it to the calf. All right. So, and a, and a lot of this forest was bare due to that drought, the millennial drought. So the 2003 fire burnt through, you know, three years, three to four years after that fire began, that drought began. There was, you could see, even in the upper Livingston, you could see long, fairly long distances. With normal circumstances, you couldn't see. But when that fire comes through, it would rejuvenate that forest. But, but here's another point, too, about the Upper Livingston. There is so much fuel in that Upper Livingston Valley that when a fire goes through there, it is going to be catastrophic. It is an incredible fuel load. It's 
damn amazing how much fuel is lying on the ground there. Um, Nothing will survive that when the fire goes through that upper Limison Valley eventually. Yeah. Just... Certainly I'm talking about the um, I'm talking about the west facing side that wasn't burnt in 2003 or 067. It's the, the boom and bust, isn't it? <laughs> you know, after a fire, you're gonna get that regrowth, but particularly if it hasn't been touched for something in you know in decades, like you said, that that fuel load, it's just gonna be uh, out of control. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. uh We've disseminated, like you mentioned, that some of the sambu were so fat that they could barely run run away from hunters because of the uh, the high amount of food after um, the second spring after a, a fire. And probably most on what's on a, a lot of hunters' lips, you know, the, the horn porn, you know, what what effect does post bushfire growth have on antler development like, are you going to see stags with record amounts of antler growth in the years after a fire and are we already seeing that do you think from from the fires of 06 and then the most recent as well yes justin there's absolutely no doubt about there's plenty of evidence of that fact um Records show that many stags with the longest, heaviest and highest scoring antlers were harvested three to four years after bushfire, but none from areas burnt by a catastrophic fire. In the, in the chapter Antler Development, published in Volume 1, I've quoted wildlife biologists who are antler experts. They have spent their entire um, scientific career studying deer and antler development. And they've stated that large antlers cannot be grown on grass alone, but require large amounts of high-quality browse, which is precisely what bushfires of the correct intensity produce. One example is a stag that has massively thick antlers, the beams of which measured almost 35 by 34 inches and scored 219 Douglas points. And that was taken by, in 2010 by Owen Claridge. It was harvested from an area burnt by the two to low 607 fire. And these long, heavy antlers and skull cap weighed 6.2 kilo. This stag had benefited from more than three years of post bushfire regrowth. Another example is a stag which beams measured 33 inches which scored 222 Douglas points, taken in 2006 by Dave Bailey from an area burnt by the 2003 fire. Not only were the antlers huge, but so was the stag's body. He had also benefited from three years of post-bushfire regrowth. Photos are stories of these two stags, plus many other high-scoring stags, some of which were harvested from areas burnt three to four years earlier appear in the chapters Australia's Top Stags in Secrets of Samba Volumes 1, 2 and 3. So we've, we're pretty much on a cusp of um, reaping the benefits from those latest fires, aren't we? We're looking at 18 months, but, you know, give it the next few years, we could see records broken again. Three to four years after 2019 um, fire? Yeah. 19? Correct. So, 
you're talking for sure. You you will see record sacks, antlers. And, you know, it must also increase, um, I suspect it also increases the reproductive rate um, of hinds. You know, they have got so much nutritious forage at their disposal. Um, they're got, they've got lots of milk. But one of, one of the interesting uh, observations is of the of Samba farmer Lyle Murray in relation to uh, fertility of his farmed hinds. Lyle fed his uh, Samba hinds wholly nutritious whole grain oats, and he noted that several of his hinds gave birth to twins. But when he sold those same hinds to a farmer who didn't feed them wholly nutritious forage, the same hinds gave birth to just one calf. So it could well be that hinds do twin after these the first spring when there's uh, an abundant amount of forage. First spring, sorry, second spring, third spring after the fire. That's a, that's a possibility, but I'm only talking possibilities. There's no research. There's no evidence. Yeah, I would have thought um, that's interesting as well. A, a boom in, a, a, I think it's impossible. I think I spoke to you on the phone about this. It's impossible to um, breed more than once in a year. So twins are possible, but multiple uh, multiple births throughout the year from the same hind isn't. Yeah, and then in the second spring, uh, they're not going to be anywhere near as um, vulnerable to dingoes. So more calves will survive in that second year, second spring and third spring. Once the fire's gone through, and this was on the tip of people's tongues 18 months ago, I saw it come up online, social media, and a lot of forums and that kind of thing. Um, in your opinion, would do you think there should be a ban placed on hunting? For a specific, I will say, time period after a catastrophic fire has come through? Do you think that that would be in the best interests of a deer population in a certain area? Look, it's a, it's a good question. And after the 203 fire, catastrophic fire burnt through uh, the Middle River and I saw Valley and, and, by the way, that fire burnt catastrophic almost all the way, all the way to Galantope. And just while we're on that point, I should say this. During those, although we only had four days of catastrophic fire in 2003, it burnt the canopies off almost half the entire 1.3 million hectares that were burnt. Because when you've got a catastrophic fire, it's not burning 10, 20 Ks, it's burning 30, 40 Ks. So, you know, You've got to put that in perspective, catastrophic fires in perspective. They burn so fast, so far, and so intense. There's an enormous amount of area burnt. I'll just have to get you, I'll get back to that point you're making. Was there a ban? No. I thought, yes, after seeing so many dead Samba after 203 fire, 46 in along the, uh, the Mittermitter River, um, many in along creeks and rivers in the Benambra area. I thought, gosh, you know, these these samba are so vulnerable. If there's not a moratorium, 
uh, hunters could just almost clean out the population. However, um, I think the fact since then, the exponential increase in Samba shows that it's just not necessary. Um, the in exponential increase in Samba is, uh, has been so immense that we have uh, helicopter shooting by parks in areas where hunters aren't allowed because the numbers are so high. We've got um, Game Management Authority in Victoria licensed now pet food shooters to thermal shoot, use thermal imaging and spotlighting on farm fringe because of the high number of sand but was impacting the productivity of the farmland. Uh, and that just shows how they've come back. Samba are the ultimate survivors. And look, during droughts, Samba are almost drought-proof. The millennial drought, sheer Samba lost stags that were roaming long distances looking for hinds, lost a lot of weight, but they still survived because they, they're great weed eaters. They'll eat anything. It'd be easier to write a book about what Samba don't eat and what they eat. They eat almost anything. I've got... I've got video of them picking up, actually vacuuming dead leaves off the ground, picking up a branch, a dead branch, and picking every dead leaf off, eating green hickory wattle leaves, eating green gum leaves. Um, Samba will eat virtually anything to survive. So I think, look, the, the years since the fire show that, no, moratoriums just aren't necessary. Errol, there was a number sort yeah, of Yeah, I did notice national parks. Are you all right, Justin? You go. Beg your pardon. Go ahead, Simo. Oh, Errol, I was just, uh, a couple of years ago, there was sort of a million, a number of a million deer was estimated to be in, in Victoria, a million Samba, sorry. Do you reckon that's that, that's on the money or like in your, in your sort of, Estimations? Look, I've never tried to do any density total population calculations, but um, gosh, it wouldn't surprise me. Because when you say Victoria, you know, they're, they're uh, if you go down to Bam River, for example, right on the south coast, the Samra walk in the streets there eating the gardens. They're <laughs> right along, right along Crowajingalong National Park. They're entrenched there all the way up to uh, Eden, Bermagui, all the way up the coast. They're in Crown Cooma, Canberra, Tumut, Tumbarumba, even out to Yass. Yeah, it's incredible, um, isn't it? Yeah, these deer have, um, are just amazing survivors. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. So, the number, well, I guess it's, it's probably academic. What we know is there's so many deer out there. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, even though there's so many deer out there, I expected that there were so many deer out there, people wouldn't have to do my training course because they should should be so easy to hunt. But what I realised is that folks should come and do, the reason they come and do the course is although there's a lot of deer out there, without the knowledge, they just spook more deer. Yeah, well, more we certainly we had no idea you know the first couple of years we went over victoria we we had no idea and we sort of quick soon realized we need to actually try and understand how these buggers work 
So I think I think I think your I think your uh, your, your course is, is is as valid today as it was ten years ago for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you've got to, uh, the last two books, Volume Three and the Huntsman System. I've started the first, the book with a chapter on evolution, as prey of tigers, leopards, wild dogs, and Homo sapiens, because that has absolutely honed the senses of these deer throughout evolution. You know, in the books of hunting big game in India, Samba stand at the top of the list. Samba were the hardest big game animal to bag, a reasonable trophy. And the British colonial hunters have written chapters about this. Bagging a Samba, so much harder than bagging a tiger in a driven hunt. Samba are just amazing at avoiding predators, Homo sapiens included. And... I think we don't realise just how cut off we are from First Nation culture of being hunters. You know, we've gone through several hundred years now of the industrial industrialised era where we've lost total contact with nature, we've lost contact with the bush. We no longer have, have the links to hunting. We've lost that knowledge. And so if you want to be a hunter, it's like becoming an electrician, a tradesman or whatever you want to be. You need to go and do the apprenticeship. Oh, yeah. you, you need to do the apprenticeship. If you don't do the apprenticeship, all you're going to do is spook and shoot. You'll be bushwalker with a rifle. How do I know that? <laughs> yeah. I did it for eight, nine years before I decided I'm going to learn about these deer. I didn't know there was anything to learn. In fact, if someone told me how much I'd, I'd learn, I would have said, oh, rubbish. It couldn't be that much possibly to learn. I've just been blown away by how much there's been to learn. And during those eight, nine years, I know what hunters need to, I now know what they need to know because during that eight to nine years, whatever mistake there was to make, I didn't make it once. I made it over and over and over. So it's, it's given me that insight into what to show blokes on the training course that I know they'll be misinterpreting, not understanding. It certainly is a lifetime, a lifetime of... Uh frustration and, and uh, <laughs> learning in there, that's for sure. Baron, you were going to ask Errol a question, I think. No, you, you asked the same as what I was, uh, pretty much spot on. That's good. Well, that's why hunters are in um, just, Simon, that's why hunters are attracted, become addicted to samba hunting. It's so challenging. They're so intriguing. That's the whole thing. I last went pig hunting in 1978. I don't know, we shot 50 pigs in Yanger Station in two days, and I said to my mate, God, there's got to be more to hunting than this. And I never went back to pig hunting. I started hunting Samba in 78, and I've never, I've just been absolutely focused on this game animal because once I started hunting them, I just became addicted. I was so intrigued by just how damn smart they were. Yeah, well, I guess that's the difference between Shooting and a hunting, isn't it? Mate, Samba is the ultimate hunting. Yeah. You could travel all around the world. You will not find a, an game animal as challenging as Samba. If you go to Africa, and from what I understand, the only animal you could find there as challenging would be bongo or something in the jungles. Samba are the ultimate. I've, I know f uh, friends who have been all over the world hunting. They're, they're massive Samba hunters, but they've hunted everything over the world. They still say Samba are the ultimate. 
Yeah, it definitely gives you uh, some great satisfaction or even seeing them, like to be able to sit back and just um, view their behaviour. Like our last few trips, you know, we've sort of cottoned on to where to find them and, and what to look for and rather than just shooting an animal, like we'll spend whole days just sitting back looking at their behaviour, their, you know, where they travel, what the, the tracks, the spokes they go up, the, you know, it's, I think I find that just as fascinating as well. And then as long as there's a bit of meat in the campfire at the end of the day, then everyone's happy. But, yeah, their, their behaviour and, the, and just viewing them is just amazing. It's just simply amazing. You know, um, it is amazing. And in the last three weeks I put up two YouTube videos. I've been pretty slack doing those. I've got a lot of video. Um, but I decided to put a couple up. And one's a stag, a young stag. And uh, there was nothing particularly uh, alert about his behaviour. And I've got some good video footage, which is on the Secrets of the Samba YouTube footage. But the interesting thing is I, I got, I've got X amount of uh, views, rah, rah, rah. I must be about three or four times the views of the hind I put up. But here's the thing. I put the hind video up because she is so incredibly alert compared to that stag. She is, you can see her nose, nostrils, concertini, drawing in scent, alert. She stood in the same spot for one hour and moved nothing except her head and her ears. Stood there for an hour. This is not one-off. This is typical behaviour. Yeah, well, those ears are ears are like radar dishes, aren't they? They have that hind. I've had hinds in the similar distances hear the shutter on my camera, and it spooked them. Wow. I've got video of that. The hind getting up, photos getting up when she heard the camera shutter. The stag standing behind her did not hear the shutter, and I, I believe that's. Again, due to evolution, hinds, females are always responsible for the care of the family group. In a polygamous society, Samba, the stags do not look after the family group, only the hinds do. And so they're always alert for predators. The stag's not. He's not looking after the group. The hind actually looks after him. And so we get focused on hunting the big stag, but... The hinds are the absolute smartest of the lot. If you catch a stag out in his own, his history. But when you've got a family group with the hind, even the three-month-old calves are on alert. They've alerted the hind to my presence. Two- and three-month-old calves. As Lyle Murray said to me once, Errol, by the time they're three days old, the old girls put the chip in them. They're bloody amazing. There's a great quote from Lyle. And he's been a Samba farmer for 50 years and he, he knows what he's talking about. But I've seen that. But you'll see stags. I've caught stags out in their beds. They don't have a clue on there. You can use your shutter. No problem. They're not going to hear because throughout evolution, their brain hasn't been completely fine-tuned and fine-tuned and passed on through the genes. That areas of the brain that control hearing haven't been developed. That's my belief like the brain of the hinds have been. And I think this applies to a lot of females. God, my wife hears a pin drop. And I say, she said, did you hear that? Oh, no. 
oh, didn't you hear that? I said, no, no. what happened? She said, it was a gunshot. <laughs> they can hear you open a, can, open a can of beer in the bloody shed at 10 a.m., that's for sure. <laughs> the females throughout evolution, their brains have been, and the latest neuroscience, you know, teaches tell us that this is a fact. Hines hear my camera shutter so often at 240 yards. Stags, we've had them in their beds so many times and God, I've had the opportunity to move for 20 minutes up the face to get to a completely level opposite a stag. He's still lying in his bed, doesn't have a clue we're there. And, um, you know, shot him lying in his bed. In fact, he shot him while he was asleep. Some people might say that's cheating, but he was shot right through the neck with his head out sleeping. And he was sleeping for a minute every minute and he'd look up and look around, but never to that intensity of his senses that you see hinds do. Now, some blokes, trophy hunters, will say, oh, Errol's full of it, you know. That's crap. Not my experience. The hinds are just so smart. And the whole family group is alert for danger. Oh, look, Errol, I'm inclined to agree with you there. You know, fallow are the same. Uh, and and uh, I'd bow hunt for goats quite a bit, and it's always the nannies that are on watch. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you there. I'm just reporting on what I see. It's, mm. That's all I can tell you. What I've seen through 21 years full-time now of studying Samba, and I don't hunt Samba. I do not shoot them, other than that stag I pointed about when I was doing the review of the Seiko. I think it's the only deer I've shot in 20 years. I've guided hunters, sat beside them, coached them, pulling the trigger on 30-inch tags. Never, ever felt, uh, oh, I missed out on a shot. You know, I should have shot. Never, ever felt envious. Happy to help them get the trophy that they valued. I just love watching, learning, and shooting with my 805.6 lens. My Nikon D500 on that in good light is amazing. I've just bought the Z6 II mirrorless. Uh, the image quality on that camera is amazing and it will also fit onto that 805.6 and my other Nikon lenses. Uh, I just love recording it and I've recorded an enormous amount of video and and uh, although I'm there in 70, uh, I hope to continue carrying that heavy system up the spur lines and getting more great photos and video, but more video now than before. I, I just didn't, I wanted photos from my books great photos and I focused on the photos and really missed out on taking a lot of great video. But from now on, I'm focusing on video. Um, Errol, I'm mindful that we've sort of taken up a fair bit of your time again and, and we could keep talking all bloody night. <laughs> but um, with the COVID and all that sort of stuff, what's happening with your um, with your uh, uh, educational uh, or your, your Secrets of the Sandbar courses? What's going on with that or the Hunt Smart courses? Well, in 2020, I had to cancel all the courses. Uh, this year, I managed to run four before we had to cancel them all because people simply couldn't travel. However, uh, I'm doing again next year, and I've already I've got eight courses listed on the website, eight dates. First course, I think there's one spot left. Second course, there's only a couple of spots left. Uh, but I'm taking up to nine this year. 
I need to make some superannuation money, so I'm doing nine. I've lost income, all my income for the last two years, basically. Yeah, right. So, so, so how can people uh, book in? Uh, simply go to my website and choose dates, and uh, they can book in from the website. They can fill out the booking form. Uh, or if they can't uh, do it on the website, they can just ring us on the phone number, 0429 and uh, I can take their booking, take credit card details over the phone. They can pay by EFT, but they can go to my website, sambardeer.com. So there you have it, listeners. Comprehensive. Look, there's 70 success stories from past participants on that success story who have taken mostly big stags, and that's the reality. A lot of hunters are focused on taking stags, and, and I don't criticise them for that, uh, but, and those success stories are on there. Yeah, well, we're going to uh, we plan on coming over and joining you uh, ourselves next year. So uh, um, we uh, are big believers in, in the system you've developed. Anyway, we said that on your first visit. So, listeners, if you if you sound sounds like you if it sounds like something you'd be interested in, you better jump on it before uh, before it gets booked out. Booked out. That's right. <laughs> well, we were booked out last year. Um, we're booked out the year before. We've been booked out every year. Yeah, well, look, we'll, we'll um, have a quick chat to you after we say goodbye, Errol, but um, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to chat to us again, mate. It's really always super interesting, and, and uh, to have you back again was a real thrill. So thanks for It's been time. my pleasure. You know, I never get sick of talking about Samba. Yeah. So, <laughs> I uh, can tell. It's not a problem. Yeah. It's not a problem. Yeah. Uh, but I'm looking forward to you guys coming over then and seeing you on the course next year. Yeah, yeah, we're keen because we've been stuck here in South Australia. We're sort of jumping out of our skins to get back over there. Well, there's a lot of deer out there now because, you know, hunters haven't been allowed to travel to hunt. So um, reports are that there's more big stags out there than ever because hunters haven't been allowed to travel to hunt for most of two years. Yeah, well, I mean, our, our plan is to come over and, and catch up with you and then just go straight out, you know, walk out of your <laughs> your location and head straight for the hills. That's our plan. So, Well, a lot of people do that. They they take a week off after the course and go straight to a hunt. And for those people from interstate uh, who don't know where to hunt, I certainly point them in the right direction, tell them which maps they need, where to go, et cetera, et cetera. There's so yeah. much... There's so much state forest out there and national park that you can hunt in. I mean, it's endless. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you need? How simple is it? All you need is a is a game lot, a license to hunt deer in Victoria. It was about fifty four dollars a year. Easy right? to get to. It's a really simple. Easy to get, to get online. Yep. Uh, take it out for one or three years, and you don't have to book it anywhere. Uh, the only restrictions are on national parks from, you know, from after the 1st of December through to the first week after Easter. Um, state forest has virtually no restrictions at all at any time of the year. So, hey, look how lucky we are in this state in terms of big game, real big challenging game hunting opportunities. You know, we're so fortunate. I went yeah, to Germany in 89 to study game management and firearm management. Mate, you had to be wealthy there to take out a lease, uh, forward a lease on a hunting block. 
Typically back then it was about eight, nine thousand Deutschmarks. Now you'd be talking probably equivalent to thirty thousand bucks for a year's lease. So unless you're very wealthy, you, you just have no opportunity to hunt unless you're a friend at the invitation of the lease here. So easy and so cheap. It's open slather, isn't it? Okay. I found it really interesting tonight, Errol. If, uh, if the deer aren't in the valley that you thought they were in, or they were in there before, I should say, they've either left one of two ways, isn't it? They've left in the back of a ute in an esky, or they've perished in the fire. You know, they haven't moved on. They haven't found new home ground. So that's a bit of a, bit of a revelation for me. They're, they're there or they're not there. And if they're not there, there's a pretty bloody obvious reason. And unless it's a high intensity to catastrophic fire, a high number will have survived wherever the fire burnt. There you go. Which, but where uh, you got high intensity to catastrophic, a high number, the high, very high number will have perished. Yeah. They don't move on. They don't catch the, the next bus to where they've heard uh, on the Samba Facebook that there's good feed uh, near Benalla, you know. Just yep. doesn't happen. They you cannot drive them out of their home range. They don't want to leave. That's where they live. And then in that home range, they have core home range. That's the area where they spend nearly all their time. I suspect it's probably their natal home range where they were born. It's where they grow with their velvet antler during a period where they hardly move at all. They just eat, drink, and sleep, rest, they get fat, they grow their velvet antler there. Then when that big high shot of testosterone occurs and the velvet antler hardens, they change from a lamb to a lion, and that's when they start patrolling that large home range. But in the end, as I've explained in the core home range with real evidence in the Hunt Smart book, they keep returning to that core home range. They keep returning. They go out and hunt for hinds, in estrus and go from gully to gully system and then they return to their core home range and there's real good evidence eyewitness accounts of that um in the hunt smart system book so much information it's been great chatting to you errol it's uh once again you've uh, created more questions in my mind than answers and i'm going to go back to your books again which is good that's what they're there for <laughs> yeah yes yeah, so i'm happy to donate a book to your raffle of the um volume two Great. Well, there we go, listeners. We'll um, we will come up with some form of competition or giveaway, and we'll let the details be known on our next podcast. If Errol's been kind enough to do that, so there you go, punters. Yeah, we'll uh, the books. we'll get we'll have a have a yarn with you between now and then, Errol, and see what we can uh, come up with. Yeah, there's list. a forty-six page chapter in that on the bushfires, uh, but there's chapters on a whole range of subjects as well. Yeah, hunting yeah. by scent, senses, hunting wallows, hunting the subalpine. There's, but people can see the chapters on our website yeah, for all fantastic. our books, in fact. Yeah, fantastic, Errol. Thanks so much, ladies and gentlemen. I think we're going to call it a night. It's been a pleasure, Errol. Next time we come back, we'll be covering uh, another contest. Uh, with courtesy of STS Steel Targets. But um, it's gonna, this is going to be a hard act to follow, Errol. Thanks a lot, mate. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.